So, what do you remember about the day that your dad was deported? I was 16, um, and my dad was, was very uh, always punctual person. He, um, he hates the African stereotype of oh, African time or that Africans are late, so he was always punctual. Um, and I, he always picked me up from school when I had National Honor Society meetings. Um, so by the time it was 4.30, um, for the first time in my life, my dad was not on time, and I was freaking out. This is Paula Benefro. Her parents were born in Ghana, then moved to Italy for work, then came to the United States in 2010, when Paula was four years old. Twelve years later, her dad was deported. Three years after that, so was her mom, leaving four daughters alone in the United States, the country they'd come to call home. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. This spring at Bitch, we're exploring the theme of family values. If that term makes you cringe, it's because family values is a phrase that right-wingers use, usually as a euphemism for attacking reproductive rights or LGBT people or women or whoever else they're scapegoating at the moment. But why do they get to claim to represent both families and values? We feminists have really strong values, ones we fight to defend and build our families around. So here on Propaganda, we're putting together a series of three episodes to reclaim and redefine what family values can mean. On today's episode, I talked with two women who fought to keep their families together as our immigration system tried to tear them apart. Their stories give us an insight into something we don't often hear about in the political rhetoric around immigration, the human impact of deportation. This land is your land. This land is my life, from California to the New York Islands. Todo para todos, nada para nosotros. This land was made for you and me. In the past month, Donald Trump issued executive orders that call for the deportation of any and all undocumented immigrants in the United States. Reporters estimate that this would mean the deportation of 11 million people. His administration is uncertain where the billions of dollars will come from to hire 10,000 new immigration agents and build new detention facilities around the country. But new raids and random ID checks have already started. In speeches, Trump defends his plan because, in his words, undocumented immigrants, quote, routinely victimize Americans and, quote, pose a threat to the rule of law. But what will thousands or millions of deportations mean for the uniquely American families that have grown up in immigrant homes? What will happen when those people, those brothers and sisters, those daughters, dads, moms and grandparents are taken from their families? Well, here's Paula's story. She talked with me from a college library, so you can hear a couple sounds in the background sometimes. When we first arrived here, um, I was at the airport with my family, and I was, you know, I was four, 
and I was really excited to be <laughs> in America. I thought I could see Britney Spears and Sync, Madonna, um, Celine Dion, because um, those are the like well-known artists from America and Italy that we listen to. Um, so I thought I was going to meet them like just within like a month of being in America, but uh, that didn't happen. But while we were at the airport, um, I remember the excitement I saw because there were so much diverse people, like there were people of my skin tone, people of different skin tone that I did not see in Italy. And I remember just actually was going up to one of them and my mom had to pull me back and she basically like settled the mission of why we're here. She was like, don't get ahead of yourself. We're here for education. Remember that always. Her family came to the United States on tourist visas in 2001, then applied for permanent resident status. But their applications were delayed after September 11th. Paula isn't clear on the details of her parents' case. She was five at the time, remember. But in any case, they started living in Columbus, Ohio, and never went back to Italy. The family's main mission was to get their four daughters a good education. Education comes first. Really, no B minuses, no Cs. Um, <laughs> if you get honor roll and they're super honor roll, they're always going to be like, why didn't you get super honor roll? You know, like, so that's, that's the mentality they place on you just to always achieve for better, higher. Um, and <laughs> so that's what I did achieve. Paula is a junior at Beria College these days. She's really excited about biology. There's a lot of fields within biology that I'm like really starting to enjoy. Like I like parasitology. Um, I like microbiology. Um, and right now I'm learning developmental biology. So that's also a field that I, I'm interested in. I just hope I can like connect all these to what I do in the future. And um, I want to be a dentist, but I also want to be a researcher and a teacher. So. Hopefully that all comes into fruition. <laughs> there are like probably not that many people who are as excited as you are about parasitology. I, <laughs> I know, but the way my teacher taught it, like, and also like I know like in America, there's not like, as compared to other countries, um, many people don't have to deal with parasites as often. But I think if I ever want to travel and I would like to help other countries, not only America, but yeah, I think that would be something I'd look into to do. Growing up, Paula's parents always stressed being creative, critical thinkers, and to work super hard in school. Um, but my mom, she was, I always describe her as the cultural, uh, religious side of my life. Um, she um, was the one who really taught me about my Ghanaian heritage and how to speak my language. And whenever I try to speak English to her, she would be like, no, let's speak Shui because she knew that um, just like it was good to be multilingual and I took pride in that. And um, my father was uh, the educational part of, educational side to me. Um, he is an accountant and um, so he really emphasized how well we should do in math and English. And during summer, even when we weren't signed a summer homework, he would give us books. Well, we actually got to choose books. And then if there were words in there, he gave us a composition book to define those words and then write sentence, new sentences with them. And then he would give us, like, me and my sister, the spelling bee challenge. Paula was a junior in high school when immigration agents came for her dad. That day, when her dad didn't come to pick her up after her honor society meeting, 
Paula took the bus home from school and her family got a call from some of his coworkers. And um, I guess one of the members uh, noticed that he was taken earlier in the day um, to a closet to speak to someone. And then another person saw him leaving in like an immigration car. Um, so then they knew that he was taken by immigration. So my mom went into, I would say, not a panic, but just started praying. I was just, I was really just like mind boggled because my dad was always the safest person. Like he's just like a homework kid situation. Like, so. Did you ever hear anything from immigration authorities? Um, I didn't hear anything from the immigration authorities. I don't think they care enough to even alert anyone. While her parents were both deported under Obama, the Trump administration has specifically started targeting people who have overstayed tourist visas, people like Paula's family. She got to see her dad once before he was deported. She and her sisters went to visit him in an immigration detention facility. It was really just all a blur because I, I feel like it was more crying than communication. <laughs> because one thing I noticed was that he had lost a lot of weight. Um, he had lost a lot of weight, his eyes were bloodshot, and he just didn't look like himself. And I knew how much he liked to take care of himself and look neat, but no, he was, he was looking rough. And yeah, it was just a hard time. There's not much I can say I remember from that conversation. I just know that he's, he just kept saying it was gonna be all right and that we should stay focused and that it would get better. He was deported after about three weeks. And so with my family, like, we were kind of scared, um, like, should we move? Because who knows where they think we are. And um, so, yeah, should we move or should we go back? I think that was, all, yeah, also a, a scared thing because my mom was like, yes, there was a, yeah, for the most part, like, during my high school finals, I remember my mom was saying that she just wanted us all to move back. And um, yeah, I was not really wanting to do that um, because I, I mean, my life was here <laughs> and my little sister's life was here and my sister's lives were here. So only my mom really knew Ghana. I, could, I, I feel I could survive. Paula had only been to Ghana once when she was three. She thinks of herself as an American. And I could only think of my little sister as well. Like she... She was born here and she's the American. And just for her to grow up without parents, I just, I always thought of her and how to help support her and her not to be upset that America was tearing her family apart. So I think one thing my mom did was just always to think like, uh, to encourage us that, you know, it seems like they're the enemy or it may feel like they're the enemy because we're hurt and we're in pain right now but know that it's just them fearing us and that's what's allowing this to happen. That's so, that's so powerful of your mom. Like her, her husband has just been deported and she's defending the system to her family, saying like, don't get mad. I mean, with her, my mom's, I wouldn't say kumbaya, but she's just, she's just a loving person. The biggest change after Paula's dad was deported was that the family now had to rely on just her mom's income. I knew that I couldn't afford books anymore, like for classes. So I just, what I did was always just try to find it from the library. Um, so I was using just the library books to 
get me through school because my dad couldn't finance that. And then we actually just realized we should just stop paying for internet <laughs> and cable. So what I did was just, I was just always in the library to get everything else I needed. So yeah, the library really became my home for <laughs> after my dad left. In 2012, Paula was able to apply for and receive temporary legal residency under the new Obama program known as DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The program is not a path to citizenship for people who arrived here as kids, but it does protect them from deportation. They have to reapply every two years and jump through some other hoops, too. I, when Obama passed his executive order, I felt like for the first time Americans could understand us. Um, and understand, like, this is a way, DACA itself, the program, would be a way to prove to other Americans that we're not criminals, we're willing to come out of the shadows and let people get to know us. And a lot of their, I, DACA felt like a lot of Americans' concerns were met, and met in a positive way, because we're trying to show you guys, you know, we're not criminals, we're not trying to steal your jobs, we're really just trying to be at your side to support you and help make America great. And for the most part, and also when DACA, the day that Obama announced that he's going to do DACA, it was actually near my birthday. So it was like a birthday present and I was just so happy and I was overjoyed. And I felt for the first time, like this is what it means to be American. Like this is what it means for citizens to speak and the government to act. Then, in 2013, Paula was in the library, of course, the library, studying for her college semester finals, when she got a call from a lawyer. It turned out to be her mom's lawyer. Her mom was being deported. The lawyer asked Paula to write an affidavit, explaining why her mom should stay in the United States. Paula left the library and returned to her dorm room in a haze. It was like, oh, heck no, they're not taking my mom if I, if, if I can help it, you know? And so I just remember just going straight to my dormitory, turning on my laptop and just um, thinking, like, how do I write this? And then I think the main question was, why should my mom stay? When I was looking at um, some examples, it was just like, why should my mom stay? Um, and reasons why. And I just felt like, oh my goodness, like, why should my mom stay? Like, I'm, I feel like I was having an existential question, like, what is the purpose of a mother? Yeah, like, what do you even possibly say in that situation? It's, it's so strange to be called upon to explain, like, in very important legal language, why you should be able to see your mother. I don't think any human being should go through feeling like they have to defend why they need a parent in their life. So I just, I stared blank at the page for a really long time and then just started writing. And then I feel like the more I was writing, the more emotional I was getting. And then I was transitioning into, oh my goodness, my mom's going to be leaving if this, if they don't care, you know? And, and I was just thinking like, in my head, like, they don't care. Like, do they care? They don't care. And how do I make them care? And, how, do, how can I be persuasive enough in just my letter? At least when my father left, we said we still had a home to go to. We still had food on the table. But seeing that my older two sisters were already married and out of the house, with my mother gone, it would just be my little sister and I. And, well, of course, I could possibly be her guardian, but I didn't 
think I was at that stage in college to be anyone's parent. And also, I just didn't think that the way my mom would want my sister to grow up and the vision that my parents both had for all of us would be really, would come into fruition if I was to be the caregiver of my sister. And I just got into this uh, high stress state. And so I ended up just putting my, um, I finished writing the letter and just went into my bed. And I remember just telling myself I was gonna take an hour break to cry it all out and then go back to studying for my exam. Yeah, it was, it was different. <laughs> it was not what I expected. The affidavit didn't make any difference. 60 days later, her mom was put on a plane to Ghana. Paula and her sisters were left with the task of packing up her family's home. The sisters all slept in one room as they boxed up their parents' furniture. In that moment, it was sad and finding things that you didn't think you would find and just, yeah, packing up memories that you don't know if you would be able to revisit because all being sent to Ghana. Under DACA, Paula is safe from deportation for now, but she has to reapply for residency every two years and she can't travel without special permission. That means she isn't able to visit her parents in Ghana. I won't really be able to be with my mom or my family united for a good time for a really long time. Since Republican politicians describe themselves as pro-family, but also support mass deportations, I asked Paula what she thought a truly pro-family immigration policy would look like. Once they realize like how much we're helping our communities and helping other Americans and how we're not destroying America by us being here and we're not trying to be dangerous to America, we're not trying to hurt anyone here, I think they should consider that that into their policies and then also consider our parents because we wouldn't be able to be contributing members of society if they didn't take the risk that they did take. Okay, Paula, I know this is kind of corny, but since you can't go visit your parents, I was wondering if you want to record a message for them here. Like, what do you want to say to your mom and dad if they're listening to this podcast? I would say I, I well, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to. Um, do, you, do you know if I, I'm allowed to speak in my own language on this thing? Okay. My film, my hope is with my home later on. Uh, I hope that you can stay strong and that one day we'll all be united with Domo and happy Independence Day. After the break, a second story, one of a possible 11 million, that shows what deporting families actually looks like. Popaganda is produced by nonprofit independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? 
Become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all of our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Hello, listeners. So we're doing this family values series, and we want to hear from you. What are your values and what are your family values? Do you try and imbue your family, whatever family means to you, with confidence, tolerance, a healthy appreciation for terrible puns? I know it might take a minute to think about what family values means to you, but when you've got something that feels like an answer, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to sarah at bword.org. That's sarah with an H at bword.org. We'll feature your voice memos on an upcoming show. Okay, thanks. The image we often see of undocumented immigrants on TV is one of danger. During his campaign, Trump hit again and again on the idea that immigrants are dangerous criminals who pose a threat to the lives of Americans. Remember how he kicked off his campaign with the statement that many Mexican immigrants are, quote, murderers and rapists? In the year-long campaign, he held big press conferences with people whose relatives had been killed by undocumented immigrants, conveying the idea that immigrants are lawbreakers who could one day murder someone you love. But that's just not true. All the statistics we have show that only a small fraction of undocumented immigrants commit any kind of felony. The stat is actually 3%. And plus, native-born Americans are twice as likely to commit a felony than undocumented immigrants. Instead of being murderous threats, most undocumented immigrants live the kind of lives that, frankly, Republicans praise in their rhetoric about the American dream. They want better lives for their kids. They want good schools. They want to own homes. But it's hard for immigrants themselves to counter those ideas about being criminals because the threat of deportation looms so gigantic. Just this month, Mississippi resident Daniela Vargas was detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement after speaking out at a rally about her undocumented status. She's Argentinian by birth and had been granted protection under DACA. But her status had lapsed in November when she couldn't come up with the $495 fee to renew her application. In this atmosphere, 25-year-old Joanna Monroe is doing something that's changing her family values. She's speaking out about being undocumented. I always knew that immigration, um, la migra, was bad. My parents would always tell me, don't tell anyone about your status. But um, growing up, I was really, really proud of who I was. I was Mexicana. I was someone um, that was very um, optimistic. And so I would say the truth. I, I was from Mexico. My parents. They would just tell me, you know what, don't tell anyone about your status. I think they didn't want me to be afraid. They didn't want me to um, be terrorized. Joanna's parents changed their entire lives to try and make a better future for their kids. And Joanna herself is a mom. She's got two kids, age six and four. I asked her to define what she thinks her family values are. The values that are in my family, there's a lot of faith. There's also um, a lot of hard work that has been passed on to me. And there's resilience as well. 
And those are the three biggest values that I think my family carries on with them. This is the kind of immigrant story, the kind of family story, that doesn't fit into Trump's narrative of why we should be deporting every undocumented American. Joanna crossed the border from Mexico at age five, the day after her graduation from kindergarten. In Mexico, the part we're from, there aren't a lot of opportunities and access to jobs. Um, both of my parents lived in poverty. I mean, poverty, the way you see, I guess, like houses built um, by cardboard, a cardboard, um, that's how much poverty was in Mexico. Um, and it wasn't until my mom started sending um, money to Mexico was when my my um, grandparents actually had access to a toilet and water um, in their house. Her dad came to the United States first. Then her mom figured out how to cross the border with Joanna and her older brother. They found a woman who would drive Joanna and her brother across the border and say they were her kids. And she just told us ba the basic instructions. Be quiet. Um, don't say anything. Pretend you're falling asleep. And that's what I did. Um, my brother doesn't really remember that, um, but I do. I was pretending to fall asleep and to keep my eyes closed um, while the guard was flashing a light at us. And then I think it just happened so fast. As soon as I remember, I woke up in a house um, with that lady, and the next day my uncles and some of my cousins came for us while my dad was still waiting um, for my mom to cross. Joanna's family lived in an apartment complex in Beaverton, Oregon, that was full of Latinx families. Her mom cleaned houses, and her dad did landscape work. Though her parents didn't talk about their immigration status at all, she remembers the threat of deportation coloring their lives in a lot of ways. At an early age, my parents told me not to be so open. And the reality came in because you would, you would see basically some ice and some police come into these apartments and they would basically do raids. And I remember being little and being so afraid of these cops because they came in with guns and I'm talking big guns, not just little guns. Immigration had a huge part of our life that we even had a game. Um, it was similar to basically tag, but basically it was the tagger would be La Migra, ICE, um, Immigration Custom Enforcement. And he, that individual would try to tag as many, as many kids as he could. When Joanna was nine, that fear came true. Her dad was stopped by Immigration and Customs Enforcement while at work, and then swiftly deported. It's very traumatizing that I just remember my mom um, laying down and me and my brother on each side. And um, there was just sobs. And so that's, that's the only thing I remember. But um, the thing is, my dad, um, then within a week, he came back. Since then, he's been living with his family in the United States. But there's always that fear that he could disappear at any time. They don't really talk about it, says Joanna. They have a very Catholic perspective. So they just tell me, you know what, Joanna, you just have to have faith. You have to have faith. Everything will be okay. We're not criminals. I mean, the people that are getting deported are criminals. And so they always try to view this um, 
side and they think that yes they're really good people and they are but essentially <laughs> I, I I'm very very um, opinionated and I tell them well you know what right now they are deporting just about anyone they could even deport me but um, they are very I guess very optimistic right now that's so weird that your parents would say it's just criminals who are being deported when your dad himself was deported Correct. Yeah. So um, I've, I have tried to have these conversations, um, but I think they have internal um, oppression and they have internal, um, I guess, traumatic scenes of their own that they don't really like to talk about it. When Joanna was in high school, La Migra came after her family again, but not for her dad, for her brother who was 20. He was detained and um, then as soon, I think we all knew what was coming. Joanna would ride the bus to high school, but her brother needed to drive to work. One random day, a police officer stopped him. When he found that he didn't have a driver's license, the officer arrested him. At the time, in 2011, the local police and immigration agents started sharing information under a federal program called Secure Communities. When he was arrested for not having a license, Joanna's brother's fingerprints were sent along to ICE, and he was swiftly slated for deportation. Joanna went to visit him there, bringing along his young daughter, her niece. My parents, my family, all put this pressure on me, right, to go see him, and gosh, I hated it because you're essentially seeing someone you love um, behind bars. And it's, it, was, it was very sad. Um, and the saddest times, I think, for me was when I had to take my niece. Um, because she, like any three-year-old, um, wanted a hug and touch her dad. But um, that was impossible, so. There was a certain point where I just wanted to give up school and start working. Start working because um, I wanted to help out as much as possible. But Joanna stayed in school. And while her brother was in immigration detention in Tacoma, Washington, Joanna graduated from high school. On the morning of her graduation, her brother called. And I remember I, I was putting on my necklace and my dress and my cap and gown. And he said to me how much he wanted to see me walk, how much he wanted to see me um, walk across the stage and receive my diploma. And unfortunately, he, he couldn't see me um, do that. And that really crushed me because I mean, I looked, I looked forward to this day. I admired my brother as much as he did to me, so um, it was really hard not having him in my graduation. Her family sold their car, and they borrowed money from friends to pay for an immigration attorney. They gathered affidavits and reference letters from teachers and friends. At the time, it seemed pretty hopeless. 
Um, there was a point where my family said, you know what, let's just, let's just let it be. Um, and so I was, I fought, I was like, no, we can't, um, we can't let my brother be deported. But something worked. An immigration judge said Joanna's brother could be released on $5,000 bail. The family got the money together and he was released. Five years later, his fate is still being determined. He could be deported or not. But he still has an immigration case. He might be deported. So he's still working to be here in the United States, even though it's been about five years now. So I'm worried about his situation. I'm worried about my situation. I'm worried about my parents' situation. Um, I'm worried about my uncles, my my community, essentially. Um, I am definitely worried every single day, yeah. A few years ago, Joanna applied to DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, but she was denied. Likely, she thinks, because of the legal issues around how she didn't cross the border secretly when she was five, ICE technically let her in when she drove across the border with that woman. Whatever the reason, she's in limbo, like the rest of her family, wondering what each day will bring. When I got denied, it changed me um, because I've, I was always that kid. Um, that would be waving the flag. That would be um, very proud to be in the United States. Um, and I felt betrayed because I love this country. I wanted to be a part of this country. Um, and I, I definitely felt betrayed. And then I, I in some way, it created a fuel in me. And I started asking questions. Well, why is it that um, we have immigration? Why is it that um, my country doesn't provide um, the essentials? And um, it started to draw me into politics. So um, I essentially want to become a social worker. It has made me stronger. Um, it has made me more resilient as well. And. Um, I just need I just need to continue to fight. These days, Joanna is a college student and works for the campus multicultural center and helps run leadership camps for youth. While talking about her status is really scary, it helps her feel powerful too. I've noticed that we tend to hide our taboos. Everybody does, right? Everybody doesn't want to talk about um, the time they they were maybe oppressed and. I mean, nobody really wants to have those conversations. But I believe it's time for us to speak up and time for us to heal and empower each other because that's all we have right now. So here's a question that I don't have an answer to. What would an immigration system look like that supported families, that supported the kind of values Joanna named, of resilience and hard work and being there for one another? What would that look like? Because it's a long way from what we have. In both these stories, Impala's and Joanna's, the rules of our immigration system seem arbitrarily enforced. Some people are deported, some aren't. Some people wait years for a decision. Some people are picked up and sent out of the country within weeks. Our presidents 
both Obama and Trump have emphasized over and over that immigration agents aim to go after, quote, dangerous criminals. But it's clear that many people who are deported are at the center of their families, just trying to make a good life. To have these parents and children and siblings suddenly picked up and removed is like ripping a pillar out from under a building. What will happen to our country if more and more people like Paula's parents and Joanna's brother are suddenly taken away? Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward. Thanks for listening.